Welcome to Let's Talk Micro. Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Let's Talk Micro. As always, I hope you had a great week. You can find Let's Talk Micro on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, Pandora, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Good Pods. Wherever you listen to podcasts, you can find Let's Talk Micro. As far as social media, I am on Instagram as Let's Talk Micro, no apostrophe, on Twitter as Let's Talk Micro 1, and on LinkedIn as Luis Plaza. So go ahead and subscribe to the podcast, you know, rate it, leave any feedback, you know, leave reviews, go ahead and follow on social media, any, leave any podcast topic suggestions. So any feedback, any suggestions, they're always welcome and appreciate it. And I also like to post pictures of organisms and give updates as to when the next episode is coming out. So go ahead and subscribe, follow, leave any feedback, any comments, or any reviews. And if you haven't checked out the previous episode, go ahead and do so. It was about Yersinia pestis, about how we identified it in the lab. And this is an organism that can be used for as a potential bioterror agent. So we are training the lab to recognize it, handle it, how to ship it, test it. So I went over terms like the LPX. Those of you that work in microbiology are familiar with this survey, the laboratory preparedness exercise. And we get it twice a year. And in this survey, we get three swaps with three case studies, and then we play them on media. And you have some organisms that they, they resemble, some like, you know, like Bacillus anthracis, Yersinia pestis. So they resemble them, and then you are trained on how to properly identify them. And then once you get to a certain point that you are unable to rule them out, then you will send them to your reference laboratory and you document that. So you're not, you're not able to identify them in your laboratory. So you will send them to a reference lab. And in that episode, I also went over terms like, you know, Sentinel lab, uh, reference lab. I went over terms like laboratory response network. And then what does that mean? So it was a great episode with good information. So go ahead and check it out if you haven't already. And I'm going to keep it short. So today's episode is an interview episode, and it's about an organism that I talked about um, earlier this year, which is Wolfhartimonas cariniclastica. So there was another case of this organism. So in this episode, I have David Gaston from uh, Vanderbilt University Medical Center, and Yember Ahmad. Um, she's right now in transfusion medicine uh, up in Boston. And they joined the podcast, and they talk about a case that they, that they worked on. So we go over the organism. Uh, they go over biochemicals, morphology, how, how it was identified. It was a great episode with a lot of great information. Dr. Gaston, he goes over... Uh, an explanation of how blood cultures are, are worked up in the lab. He talks about susceptibilities. He talks about biochemicals. It was a great conversation. It was very fun learning more about Wolfhartimonas caniclastica. In this case, it was a polymicrobial infection. So it was seen in a polymicrobial infection, which the previous case that I went over earlier this year, it was a monomicrobial. But this organism is typically seen in polymicrobial infections. So it was, it was a great episode, a great conversation. And they even thanked us 
for the work we do in the lab, which I know sometimes it feels a lot. And we don't do it for the recognition or the kudos, we do it for the patients. But it's always nice to be, you know, being recognized for the work we do. So let's go ahead and listen to the episode. So earlier this year, I had an interesting uh, interview about an interesting case in microbiology. I mentioned that now with the era of Molotov, how we start seeing more names, more, you know, different organisms, more names that we used to see previously with the instrumentation that we had in the lab. So today I have another case about that same organism that we, I talked about earlier this year. So it's about Wolfhartimonas cariniclastica. And this article is titled The Fly Who Cried Wolf. And this was published on June 15th in the Journal of Clinical Microbiology of the American Society for Microbiology. So today with me, I have two guests, Dr. David Gaston and Dr. Yember Ahmad. Doctors, welcome to Let's Talk Micro. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, Luis, this is great to be here. Thanks so much. Definitely my pleasure. So typically, as uh, with the audience, I always you know, like to let the guests introduce themselves. So let's go ahead and start with that. Sure. Um, so hi, everyone. My name is Yember Ahmad. Um, I am originally from Houston, Texas, and I went to medical school at University of Missouri, Kansas City, go Brews. And then I did my residency in anatomic and clinical pathology at Johns Hopkins. Um, and that's where I came across this case that we'll be talking about soon. And now I'm doing my fellowship in transfusion medicine and blood banking um, at Harvard Medical School, um, rotating at both Brigham and Women's Hospital and Massachusetts General Hospital. And I'm really excited to be here today. Great, and I'm David Gaston. I am the director of the Molecular Infectious Disease Laboratory at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. The MIDL is part of the clinical microbiology uh, group here at BUMC. Um, I come from a bit of a different path. So I did my MD PhD at UAB, University of Alabama, Birmingham, went on to do internal medicine at University of Utah, and then infectious diseases at Yale, and then clinical microbiology at Johns Hopkins, which is where I met Yimber, and we were rotating together. Um, she was rotating in the microbiology lab uh, when, when this case came through, and it, it's a fun one to talk about. Uh, so from then on, I uh, went to Vanderbilt um, as an assistant professor where I co-direct the laboratory here with Romney Humphreys, um, and it's a fantastic spot to be. So very grateful to be here at VOMC. Nashville is fun. Come and visit. Come say hi. We'll show you a good time. And there's some great micro here at VOMC too. Um, but this case took place at Johns Hopkins, and it's a good one. Well, it is definitely a pleasure to, you know, having both of you on board. And, you know, we, we had some logistics to finally get here. So thank you. And, yeah, I haven't been to Nashville, so one day. But definitely, th those were some great introductions. So, um, you know, I'll ask questions as we go along, but uh, let's start with an overview of this case. Sure, I can talk about um, the case and give an overview. So this case um, we presented was a middle-aged man who was initially admitted to our hospital for a polymicrobial wound infection involving multiple wounds on his right foot and the toes of both of his feet. Um, he was discharged home on antibiotics, but, but unfortunately he missed his outpatient follow-up appointments after that. Uh, so three months later, he came to our hospital again, this time with a large wound involving the right foot. So the same foot that was infected prior. 
and this wound had been present for about three weeks. He had tried to take care of the wound himself, um, but unfortunately he was living in his car at the time and he was trying to manage his own wound dressings there. And so it uh, got worse. And when his foot was examined in the hospital, his care team saw a large wound that looked like it was going straight from the dorsal to plantar surface of his foot. So kind of like straight from top to bottom all the way across. And there was visible bone plus and multiple maggot in our um, case publication. And there was a foot x-ray that showed osteomyelitis and destruction of multiple bones in his feet. And he also presented with a lot of signs and symptoms that were concerning for sepsis, like feeling very tired, um, low appetite. He had some vital sign abnormalities, high white blood cell count, lactate and CRP. And he was also in a hyperosmolar hyperglycemic state, um, which is a complication of diabetes that can be precipitated by infection. And this patient did have a history of diabetes as well. And so due to concern for sepsis, blood cultures were sent to the micro lab on the day of admission, and we'll get to those findings shortly. Um, but in the meantime, he was started on empiric antibiotics with vancomycin and hypercillin tazobactam. And due to the extent of his infection, the foot unfortunately had to be amputated. And all specimens from the operating room go down to anatomic pathology. And there we can take a closer look under the microscope if we need to. And in this case, microscopic sections were taken of the foot and those showed abscesses involving the deep soft tissues and tissue necrosis or tissue death. So back in the micro lab, um, the anaerobic bottle from this blood culture flagged as positive and the blood auger plates grew a mixed population that had some small beta hemolytic colonies also mixed with large gray mucoid colonies. Um, and of note, it was only the anaerobic bottle that was positive, the aerobic bottle did not flag as positive. Um, those larger colonies were subcultured onto blood auger and McConkie auger plates and colorless colonies grew after 48 hours. Um, and the organism was then confirmed to be gram negative and oxidase positive. Um, Maldi-Toff preliminary, preliminarily identified the organism as Wolfartimonis chitinoclastica using a research-only database. So this then had to be confirmed um, for diagnostic purposes with 16S rRNA gene PCR and sequencing, and that did confirm the identification as Wolfartimonis chitinoclastica. And those blood culture plates were also growing those small beta-hemolytic colonies, and those were identified as Enterococcus acalis and Streptococcus agalactiae. Um, and the microlab did some susceptibility testing for Wolfardomonas, and um, that led to vancomycin being discontinued and piptazo being continued. And the rest of his blood cultures were um, luckily negative after that, and he was discharged home on linezolid and ciprofloxacin. And three months after discharge, during his follow-up, he was doing well with no further infections or hospitalization. Okay, yeah, thank you for that. Um, so definitely those of you on the audience out there that, you know, if you're a medical laboratory scientist, you know, you definitely have heard a lot of tests that, you know, we work with. You know, you mentioned CRP, you mentioned, you know, lactate. And then those of us in micro, definitely, you know, we're definitely familiar with vancomycin, you know, with uh, piptazo. So, and one thing that I learned as I was doing a previous um, episode was that I guess that's pretty standard when a patient comes in, that's like what they started with until you find out what the organism or 
um, you start with vancomycin and piptazole. So definitely it was, it was really great for me to learn that, you know, we do all this testing and to kind of see a little bit how it goes behind the scenes on the other side, it's always great. It just, you know, makes us learn more and more, you know, it's very educational. And, and that varies just to jump in as an infectious disease doctor, you know, thank I'm, I'm not currently practicing ID, hopefully will again in the future, but board certified to do so all to say the different institutions um, have slightly different empiric antimicrobial regimens they start with, but you're right that vancomycin and piperacillin and tazobactam is one of the, the main kind of antibiotic cocktails to use. Um, and the reason for that is you're covering a lot of what probably could be causing a patient to be very sick with that. Um, you're covering MRSA, you're covering a lot of streptococcal species, you're covering a lot of gram-negative organisms, you're also covering anaerobic bacteria, piperacillin and tazobactam can treat anaerobes too. Um, so you, you are covering a lot of what's there, um, but that is very broad. And one of the things we want to do in infectious diseases is, is use the, the right antibiotics for the right patients, for the right syndrome, for the right amount of time. Those are all principles of, of antimicrobial stewardship. And that's granted not what we're talking about today. Um, but, you know, keeping someone on very broad antibiotics like that can actually do more harm than good in the long term. Um, you you want to be able to really get the most narrow antibiotics as possible and find the best way to treat them. Um, and really for the shortest amount of time, you only, you only want antibiotics for as long as you need them. They're, they're wonderful, wonderful um, treatment strategies, but you know, they, they can get overused. So all to say, um, you know, that that's the largest way to start. And then you really narrow down and you want to, you want to be on the best. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, so you mentioned that the foot, you know, so was this also culture? Cause I know that, you know, with the wolf Hartimonas uh, grew from the blood culture. Do you know by any chance if, if did it grow on the foot or did the foot grow anything? If it was, if it was culture. That's a great question. Um, unfortunately, the foot wound was not sent for culture during this admission. He had been admitted previously um, a few months ago and wound cultures were sent at that time. Um, so perhaps it was, you know, thought that maybe new cultures wouldn't be helpful or it was just an oversight at the time. Um, so it's fortunate that we didn't have that info, but since Wolfartimonis chitinoclastica is known to be associated with wound infections and it was found in the blood, I think it can be safely assumed that the foot wound was the source of that organism. Okay. And as you were doing that, an overview of the case, you mentioned it, but let's just for the audience again. So what was used to identify this organism? You mentioned Malditoff and was it, you said the broker? Yeah, so I, I'll jump in here coming from the microbiology standpoint. Yes, so the standard protocol that is followed in, in microbiology laboratories when it comes to blood cultures is you have some sort of system that can allow the organism to grow. And, and the whole philosophy of blood cultures is, is really fun to me because most of the time in medicine, we want to prevent the growth of microorganisms, except when we're more or less in control. And then we want the, the battle to shift towards the pathogen and we want the pathogen to grow. We just don't want it to grow in the human. So, you know, we, we try to make the in vivo situation look as close to the in vitro situation as we can. We try to replicate exactly what that organism would want so that it wins but in a very limited place, just so that we can detect it. So grown in a blood culture um, environment, both aerobic and anaerobic bottles were used. 
those flagged positive. And uh, then you take them off, you do your gram stain, uh, you plate them, you may do additional steps to try and, and uh, do a, a fast molecular identification if, that, you know, if that's possible. Um, but then plating them out onto different media is very important. And so the, some of the standard media that's used is sheep's blood, agar, 5% sheep's blood, um, chocolate agar, which for everyone who's, who's not involved with clinical microbiology here, it doesn't contain chocolate. Sheep's blood does contain sheep's blood, but chocolate does not contain chocolate. It's sheep's blood that's been autoclaved in the erythrocytes lice, releasing all of the yummy bits on the inside that, that bacteria just love. Um, so you can grow sort of more fastidious organisms with that, but as with all of microbiology, there, there are caveats to all this. Uh, and then different selective plates. So those are very permissive plates. Um, they, they don't try and prevent anything from growing, that if something's there, they want to try to facilitate its growth. But then there are also um, selective plates like CNA, cholestinoctic acid, which prevents gram negatives from growing, allows gram positives to grow, or McConkie agar, which contains crystal violet and bile salts that prevents gram positives from growing, but does allow gram negatives to grow. Uh, and then you look to say, okay, what's, what's growing? So that's what was done here um, with growth on the blood plates. And then you go to say, all right, go back to your you know, 150 plus year old test, your gram stain, you know, absolutely amazing test that you can get so much information from. And it's a, in terms of the history of medicine, a quote unquote ancient test that, that we're still using every day and tons of information come out of it. So you look at that, we see these gram negative rods that are on there. And then we go from a 150 some odd year old test to a test that was you know, developed pretty recently with Multitoff mass spectrometry, and that utilizes lasers where, and then other you know, bits of magic microbiology to look at charge mass ratios of proteins that zoom across a vacuum tube and hit a sensor at different speeds. And that can give effectively a, a fingerprint um, that it's using proteomics to be able to say, what is this organism? And you can get down to a species level with that, which is really just remarkable. So this is part of the fun of microbiology. We're using ancient technology and cutting edge technology simultaneously to be able to make these kind of, um, these kind of calls to help clinical teams do the day-to-day the -day work of patient care. So it was identified with that. And then um, 16S sequencing was employed to be able to confirm that. Part of it was because when this isolate came through the microbiology lab at Johns Hopkins, the, um, the database that we were using for the Multitoff hadn't had enough organisms where we could legitimately call Wolfhard and Monus Tritonoclastica based on the, the Maldi spectroscopy output. So, you know, this was, I think, the fifth, and we, needed, we need five to be able to say, yes, it's valid, and we go from there. Um, so the way that we validate different organisms is we do sequencing of the 16S rRNA gene. Um, that's a really complicated gene. It's a fascinating gene. Um, generally, if you, if you sequence the first um, components, it's broken into nine variable segments. But if you look at V1 through V3, you can get a really good um, identification down to a species level. So that was done here. Um, you can get into you know, some of the sequencing you know, weeds if we want to. Um, but on the whole, that's, that's what was done. And then we could say, yep, this is Wolfhard and Monus Tritonoclastica, plus some friends, plus the Enterococcus, plus the, um, the strep uh, species. So, um, you know, uh, when you've got a polymicrobial foot infection like this, it's, it's not uncommon to see polymicrobial bacteremia if it's really bad. Um, but, you know, as, as was mentioned, if there had been an operative culture taken from 
the foot wound itself very well may have found more things too. Um, the, these, these infections can get, uh, can, can have a, a lot of friends coming to join the party. Oh yes. You know, definitely. Uh, some of those foot cultures that we have worked in the lab, you know, it's very typical. Sometimes, you know, you see sometimes two to three enterobacteriales and then on top of that, you know, another, you know, see some non-fermenters as well. So they can get very, very messy to say that. Um, definitely, you know, thank you for that about the, the setup or the blood cultures, you know, that was very informative. Um, and uh, you mentioned definitely, you know, and I, I like to take the students, you know, about chocolate because they think that because, you know, it helps grow homophilus, you know, once those blood cells are lice. And so, but chocolate is not a selective agar. I think sometimes students, because of homophilus, they think, oh, it's selective and it's, it's not, it's just, it helps those organisms that are fastidious, but it's not selective. Yeah, it's important to note there are some organisms that will not grow on chocolate agar. So there, there are certain crinibacterium species that are lipophilic. And if you don't have lipids in your agar, they won't grow readily. So something like, you know, Columbia 5% sheep's blood that contains tween, that's going to allow lipophilic crinibacteria to grow um, whereas they actually won't grow on chocolate. So chocolate doesn't grow everything. It, it grows many things. Um, you know, the, the homophilus example you, you give is a great one. You know, factor X, factor V, um, NADP, or sorry, NAD, NAD and heman, switch those. Uh, you know, th those are in the erythrocytes and then get lysed when, when you autoclave it. So it's able to, to grow homophilus. But yeah, that's, that's a great point. You know, there, there's a certain algebra that comes into what grows on what what plates, um, and not all organisms read the textbooks either, which is tricky. Uh, so there's that. They do not, you know. Well said. Definitely, they do not go to school and they don't, you know, study what we do. So yes, I agree. And about the gram stains. Before I move on to the next question, that's something that I always like to talk about. And you are so right. You know, it's it's such a great tool. It's so helpful. It gives you so much information. And I guess in the, in the scale of time, I haven't been doing this long enough, but I have been doing it long enough where I have seen, you know, pre-Maldi era and then currently with Malditop. And as we move, you know, texts, they kind of stay away from gram stains. You know, it's like, why do this when we can have that information from an instrument? But it's, it's such a helpful tool. You know, it can point you the right way. You know, you can rule things out you know, rule things in. And that's just not good micro when you're putting something on the Molotov and it fails and you keep going until you get some sort of result, you know, mistakes happen. You can scan the wrong plate. You can have uh, another person that doesn't know what that particular calling that you're trying to identify is. And maybe they set up the wrong organism. So many, many variables. So it's just definitely your gram stain is a very helpful tool. As a microbiology old director, what's no, oh, sorry, Sagan Uber? I was just saying old is gold. <laughs> old is gold. I like that. As somebody who's not young, that also sounds really good to my ears too. But I like that. Old is gold. Um, and and as as a microbiology director, Louise, that that just makes me so happy to hear you say that because you are right on um, that. Just because it is a more advanced test than other tests we use in the laboratory, that does not foundationally make it better. And there are so many variables, like you mentioned, that can go into getting a misleading result. And it's our job in clinical microbiology and in, in all of pathologies. And, you know, what Yimber is doing as well with transfusion medicine 
is to provide the most reliable results in the fastest amount of time for the least cost to the patient. Um, but it's really about that, that reliable result. You know, we're producing the data of medicine and we've got to make sure we're giving good data and a component of, of that, of those results, right? There's a difference between data and results. And really what, what we, what we give are results um, to be able to get to that result it's a multi-step process. You have to have to have multiple individual points of data that all point in the same direction to be able to say, yep, this is it. So if you get a moldy result that doesn't make sense and say it's a moldy result for a gram positive organism, but the gram stains gram negative, right? Don't just say, oh, well, well, the moldy said it, so we're gonna report it out. No, it's, it's where you have to interact with that data and think about it critically. And in the midst of a busy microbiology lab, that, that can be really, really hard to do. Um, but it's so important to take that moment to think critically because what we're all doing here is patient care. We're, we're trying to, to do the best for, for sick folks in the hospital um, and, you know, taking that extra step to say, hey, let me make sure that this result that I'm about to result out is the most accurate as it can be is super important. Yes, I definitely agree. And just to, um, before I move on real quick. So, yeah, me as a tech, I think that Normally, by the time you put something on one of these instruments, you already pretty much have a good idea of what you have. So it's not about finding the answer, just about, for me, like proving what you have. So you already know for most plates, you already, I already know I have a steno, I already have a fecalis, I have this, I have that. So I'm putting it on the instrument to confirm that and have that documentation and have that proper ID. And then, you know, those susceptibilities, but it's just, you should have a pretty good idea of what you have before you Put it on the instrument and this is done of course you know by you know practice repetition and definitely educating yourself and reading your policies reading your textbooks and you know getting all that knowledge yeah and you that you you bring up a, a really good point um which is a point about databases and and that's a point that yimber got into in the article that we're talking about and i think it's a really foundational point within clinical microbiology but also within pathology that the the test that you're using, when it's the kind of test that, that accesses a database, right? I'm not talking about a test like an oxidase reaction in which you do it and then you, you know, it's positive or negative. You look for that colorimetric change. I'm, I'm looking for a kind of test where you say, you can get a result and or a bit of data, and then you have to apply that data to a database to be able to actually get an answer or get a result the quality of that database is absolutely critical to be able to get a reliable result. Um, and what you just described is making the database of your own knowledge. When you are doing this kind of work, you are building your own internal database with your own knowledge databank. Um, and you've got to make sure that that's really good. And you've got to make sure that that's maintained, you know, and some of that is through continuing education. Some of that's through listening to fantastic podcasts like yours. Um, some of it is, you know, reading <laughs> articles like, like this one, you know, to make sure that that database stays robust. Um, and, and that's, you know, that's critical is to have a good database. Um, My daily practice is not microbiology. As David said, I'm in transfusion medicine, but all of these principles apply like equally well because it's also a laboratory testing for patient care. And sometimes we, you know, we have very advanced types of testing, like involving gel and solid phase and all these fancy machines, but sometimes doing it in the test tube is like the best way to get to the bottom of the answer. Yeah, um, definitely, you know, blood bank was my second favorite subject. And I always tell everyone in a world where there's no micro, 
I will be a blood banker. I just, I love the same thing as, you know, that, that mystery, finding out what you have and it's just the knowledge, you know, all the things that you need to know, it's just, I find it amazing. Okay. Um, so it was identified by Molotov. And then as far as biochemicals, you know, you touched on some of those, but let's talk about those and their results. You're, you're talking to the director of molecular infectious diseases here at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. I'm, I'm well, you know, I'll talk about biochemicals as much as I can. Again, I, I'm a microbiologist, so I guess I have to talk about biochemicals a little bit, um, which gets at the idea that biochemicals in microbiology are not as relied upon in the same way that they were even 10 years ago. There are some key biochemicals that, that we utilize to put organisms in, in you know, different, different stratifications. And the point, Louise, that you made a moment ago of when you get to the point of taking a pure colony and spotting it on your moldy plate and then putting it on moldy, you already have a suspicion of what that is. You, know, you, you already have a hypothesis and you're looking to moldy to be a test to support or refute that hypothesis. That's science. And that, you know, that, that's the scientific method is, is you say, all right, I've got these other bits of data. This is, this is my conclusion. Now let me test that in a different way and see if it supports my conclusion. So you know, you're doing the same thing. Biochemicals are one step in that. Um, and biochemicals will be one of those bits of data that you help put together with the gram stain, with the Maldi-Toff result, with the sequencing results to then say, this is what we think it is. Um, and all of those different components are, are going forward in it. Um, so th this organism, Wolfarthemus chitinoclastica, it's oxidase um, positive, which is one of those big, you know, set points to say, all right, we have a gram negative organism and a gram negative organism that most importantly is a non-fermenting gram negative rod. So you put it on the McConkie agar, which contains lactose. And if, if it ferments lactose, it'll turn pink. This didn't, and I love the point that Yimber put in this paper that it had a slightly pink tinge to it. Um, which you'll see sometimes as organisms uptake crystal violet, but they don't turn that great, you know, Nashville hot pink that that they've you know that they've really got to turn to be able to to be um, called lactose fermenting. And even that, you know, that there's there's some gradient there, and you've got to look at a lot of McConkies to be able to really say, yep, that's lactose fermenting, and nope, that's not lactose fermenting. Um, there is a there is certainly a level of interpretation and a level of subjectivity to the very objective results that we end up putting into the chart. And that's something that folks who aren't in the world of laboratory medicine don't, don't fully see as much that, you know, that there is real, there's a real practice to the art of, of clinical pathology. Um, and that, that sort of shades of pink in this, you know, in this sense, uh, you know, that comes out, but Wolfhard most Classic is, is a non-lactose fermenting gram negative rod. So it would have looked at it under the gram stain, saw that it's gram negative, um, would have looked at the plate, saw that it's not fermenting lactose and then done an oxidase test and saw that it was oxidase positive. So that then puts you in a bucket just right there to say, huh, all right, that, that's a lot of interesting organisms. Um, and then from there, you go on to say, do we need to do more biochemicals? And if it was 10 years ago, we'd say, yep, we're going to set up a lot of biochemicals and help to get an identification of what this organism is. Now we say, let's try to, let's try to put it on the moldy because it's a lot faster. It's a lot cheaper. Um, and there is a level of subjectivity that's taken out of it. There is still subjectivity that goes into interpreting moldy results. 
Um, it's not just you put it on and you get your little strip of paper that says, okay, here's your answer. Sometimes that happens, but sometimes you have to interpret it. Um, this is one I, I don't think there was much interpretation. Running it on one database um, did not give an answer, right? And that doesn't mean that the test didn't work. It just meant that it wasn't in the database. Um, then running it on a research use database gave the answer of Wolfhard Monus Chitinoclastica, but from CLIA regulations, CAP regulations, uh, you know, we can't report that out into the chart. We have to confirm it in a different way that we're validated to do, which is the 16S RNA sequencing, which also confirm Wolfhard Monus Chitinoclastica, and then go from there. So biochemicals were useful in this in this case, um, but you know, useful in the sense of getting it into a particular bucket that would help us form a hypothesis of what could this be that then when we got the moldy result in the 16S RNA sequencing result, then we're able to say, okay, that confirms, you know, it's all consistent and so let's report it out. And also I should make very clear when I say we, that's not me. Those, those are the fantastic techs at Johns Hopkins who are doing this kind of life-saving work every day. Um, it, it's a really phenomenal group of people. Um, really phenomenal group of people at Vanderbilt University Medical Center too. I have to say the the, the techs here are are amazing. Um, it was the the techs who were doing a lot of this work uh, in characterizing this from the clinical perspective, and they're they're awesome. You know, like now that you touched a little bit on the on the McConkey, and that's good that you say that about the you know the shades and because sometimes you know like great example and when students are for example like asking it of actor that. It can look like a like a hot pink sometimes, you know, on McConkey. And but it's not a fermenter. And if you check on the literature, you know, it says that it oxidizes the lactose. Um, and then it has that color, but it's not a fermenter. So it's definitely good to keep that in mind. Um, as far as you said for the Molotov, so you does so it was identified on the RUO, the research use only. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, and I mentioned this on a previous episode, but and you talk, you talk about validation, for example, in my system, which is the, the one that I use on my hospital, which is the Vitec MS. So organisms that are not claimed or, you know, not validated, they give you an N next to the name. And then you have to validate them, you know, with an X amount of organisms. And then once you get to that number, then you can go ahead and accept it. The N is never going to go away. It's just, you know, like something as simple as like Aerococcus urinae or but once you get to that number, then you can go ahead and uh, use that ID. Uh, with full Harftimonas, I mean, you don't get that many cases, so it's definitely hard to get to that number. It is. Surprisingly, this was the fifth at Johns Hopkins. So, um, you know, we're, we're able to, to get up there. And it's an important point that you make is what is that number and where does that number come from? You know, that, that's a number that's decided by the, by the laboratory medical directors. Um, there, there's great literature about validations and verifications that's out there. But when you look at the numbers that are called for, a lot of them don't agree. And so um, that's a kind of place within the laboratory community where a little bit more standardization is needed. And, and there are groups that are working towards that. Um, Dr. Karen Carroll, who's the, the uh, main medical director up at Johns Hopkins, tells great stories about when she was starting to validate Malditoff and talking to different people. You know, she, she would hear very, very, very different numbers of what people were doing, what she was doing leading the charge at Johns Hopkins. You know, she, she's a fantastic microbiologist. And so she would, um, you know, she, she was being much more robust than, than what, what it sounds like some other people in the field were doing at the time. Um, but, you know, even, even now, when you do a validation of a new test and, you know, Yimber, please comment about how this works in transfusion medicine. 
Um, it's up to the medical director to say, this is sufficient, this is not sufficient, we need to do more, we're done, et cetera. Um, you know, and the difference from validations versus verifications. So. Yes, definitely also applicable in transfusion medicine and all areas of laboratory testing. There's some degree of subjectivity and judgment, like clinical judgment is an art of what exactly to do to validate a test and how to make it most useful for your patient population. And Lewis, I think you also mentioned that at your institution, you use the Vitek database. Um, and I just remember that in, in our um, publication, we reached out to, I think, one of the um, people who works at Vitek and asked if this organism was included in the database at the time, and it was not, but it was included in the latest version of the Bruker database. So it's also an important point that different databases have different organisms, and you might not have the, cor the correct database at the time to actually get the result you need. Yes, and something that I, as I was reading the article that even um, so, because one thing sometimes you know when an organism if you don't have the it's not included like let's say in a Vitek card or you know sometimes you can get an ID, but that doesn't mean that is the the correct one. And I know that the article was mentioned especially that you can get like Vitek has produced results with this organism as rhizobium, um, ascomomonas, which you know. Right. They are oxidase positive too, but uh, you know different morphologies. So, yeah, that's something that sometimes you know you can get an ID and it's not the the correct one. Yeah, and, and at risk of, of friends at Biomer, you hearing this and saying, "Hey, don't throw Vitek under the bus." Um, you know, they're, they're just between the two producers of Multitofs right now, Bruker and, and um, Vitek. They're, they both have very similar technologies. They work a little bit differently. They have slightly different databases. One's not necessarily better than the other. It, it really gets to um, what works for an individual institution, and there's a whole lot that goes that goes into that. Um, you know, but with all that, the the database is key. It is is absolutely vital. You know, you can generate the the data by a variety of methods, but you've got to have a database that actually has that organism in it, you know, because you're holding it in your hand, you've got it in the plate, you're like, I know this thing exists, I can look at it, I can gram stain it, here it is. Um, why am I not getting a result? And so then you've got to go back and try to troubleshoot that. Is it a problem with the way that the Maldi itself was, was, was performed? Is it a problem with, you know, oh, forgot to put matrix on? Well, it's matrix assisted laser desorption. So uh, I forgot about the matrix, right? So you've got to figure out little things like that. Um, but if nothing's working, you got to think about the database. Is it, is this not in the database? And that applies to all else in you know clinical pathology that utilizes database. My you know I love to talk about next generation sequencing based approaches and clinical metagenomics and all that. That's a big big question within the field of clinical metagenomics is just being able to have sequencing databases that have you know that are robust enough to be able to really find what what may be there. Yes, and if you get an ID that you you know it's like a suspicious and you wanted to confirm it to another method, um, you know, because sometimes you know, for example, even with Molitov, we get this ID and then you know the text says, Oh, well, I'm gonna run it on Vitek. Well, first, you know, go ahead and check. Does that card identify that particular organism? So that's always a good you know um place to start. So always check if you're gonna put it on an instrument, check if that particular test will actually identify it before before doing that. That's good. Um, so I see that, you know, you talked about this, uh, Dr. Ahmad, but so in this case, 
so it seems like with um, wolf artimonas, typically seen in polymicrobial infections. I know that I, I had a case before that it was monomicrobial, but the case is like it's, it's typically polymicrobial, right? Yeah, um, I, I did some literature review while you we were writing this case up to see what had been published other times. And most of what I came across was polymicrobial wound infections and a few associated cases of sepsis. And most of the cases of sepsis were associated with primary wound source. Okay. Um, so and I see like in this case, so susceptibilities were performed on an automated system. So uh, can you talk about what was susceptible and what was resistant for this organism? Sure, I can talk about that from a micro perspective really quickly too. Um, it's important when you think about susceptibility testing how how you interpret it. Um, you know, the CLSI M100 certainly does not have Wolfartimonas tritinoclastica included in it, and um, ne neither does the M45. So you know, you've really got to say how if we get MIC results, how do we then s interpret those to say susceptible, intermediate, resistant, etc.? So, you know, one way to do that is you can you can use certain the kind of buckets we were talking about, where you can say, well, this is a a, a non-fermenting gram-negative non-enterobacterialase organism, and there are interpretive criteria for those in CLSI M100. Um, is you know, as as microbiology progresses and we learn more about these individual organisms, what is in that group will probably be split out with different interpretive criteria that comes along. Always important to remember that the art of setting breakpoints, MIC breakpoints to be able to get interpretations um, is pretty complicated and changes. Those breakpoints change when we get more information about these organisms. Um, so those, those are the breakpoints that were applied here. And it, it winds up that they were you know, pre pretty susceptible. Um, this is not necessarily surprising. So this is just me kind of going off the cuff and thinking, well, why would there be intrinsic resistance to anything? This is an organism that's primarily found in the gut of flies. It's part of the, the microbiome of flies. So flies are not really seeing antibiotics that much. When you think about some environmental bacteria that can be very resistant from the get-go, so different Pseudomonas species, Burkholderia species, you know, those are in the environment and they are interacting with other organisms in the environment that produce molecules very similar to antibiotics. Most of our antibiotics come from nature, and then we modify them a little bit, and then we, you know, purify them, and, and there we go, right? That's how penicillin was found, and it's how a lot of other antibiotics were found too. So these organisms, particularly those that are environmental, have seen very similar compounds to what we're using to treat for the past, oh, I don't know, 100 billion years or so. And they, they have ways to, to work with these. You know, Thinking about an organism that's not found in the environment and soil, but is found instead in the guts of flies, maybe there haven't been those same selective pressures that have been going on for the past, you know, since beginning of creation. Um, so from that standpoint, they're, you know, it's not too surprising in this sense to be able to say that it was, called as broadly susceptible to the antibiotics that are used and different antibiotics with different mechanisms of action, some that affect the cell wall, others that infect other, or that in, not infect, others that affect um, other parts of the, of the microbial growth cycle. Um, but it does help the infectious disease providers be able to say, all right, we need to treat with antibiotics that 
kill all of these organisms that were found in the blood. Um, and that was that was effectively done. Okay, and now that you touch on the on the fly, um, you know, can you talk a little more about the the catenase and its relationship to the fly? Sure, I can talk about this. This is like one of my favorite things I learned in microbiology because I thought this association was so cool. So chitin, Wolfartimotis Wolf chitinoclastica, um, the species name has the word chitin in it. Um, and chitin is a important biopolymer in nature. And um, it's a polysaccharide composed of N-acetylglucosamine, which is a derivative of glucose. And many mi micro folks are probably aware that it's found in the cell wall of fungi, kind of as a scaffold for that cell wall. And in a similar way, it's also found in the exoskeleton of many insects, including flies, um, also kind of as a scaffold for their body. Um, and so chitinase, as the name suggests, is an enzyme that degrades chitin. And insect growth and metamorphosis relies on chitin remodeling. So they need to constantly make chitin synthases or enzymes that make chitin and then chitinolytic enzymes or enzymes that degrade chitin, um, which would be chitinase. And so for this reason, the fact that Wolfartimonis chitinoclastica produces chitinase and is found in fly larvae or larvae um, suggests that it has a symbiotic relationship with its host and is helping it grow, uh, which is really interesting, I think. And also speaking of the name of the organism, shout out to one of our co-authors, Diana Zong, who came up with this really creative title of Fly Who Cried Wolf. I would not have come up with that myself, thought that was really funny. Um, but yeah, it's a cool name and a cool story to the name. Diana is also a great artist and she put together this fantastic cartoon. She's a medical educator, um, infectious disease fellow up at Johns Hopkins, uh, but a, a medical educator as well um, that, what, what is her Twitter handle? Hold on, if you wanna, Look her up. It's at Dr. Dinosaur. Yeah. Um, so she put that in the in the show notes here. Um, she she had a, a great a great comic that she made too, which uh, we tried to get included in in the manuscript, but ultimately, yeah, ultimately didn't get included. But a, a really fun, just a kind of visual mnemonic of Wolfartomonas chitinoclastica um, with a wolf farting. Right. And, you know, it's that's sort of sort of fun um, while and being very embarrassed while looking at some larvae since it's fly larvae. And then there is a um, a fly that's uh, that's there. So it's it's a it's a super, it's a fun cartoon that she made. Yeah. Her Twitter is Dr. Dianasaur. Her name is Diana. And she no, has Dr. Dianasaur. I'm sorry. I said Dianasaur. she has a cute little vaccine cartoon she made like pinned as one of her tweets. So everyone should go follow her for her cool art. OK. Uh, Dr. Dianasaur on Twitter. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, definitely. You know, that name, that's what, you know, caught my eye in the first place when I was pouring through the journals and I'm like, oh, the fly hook right wolf. And I, and since I already had done a previous episode, I, and I figured that it was about that organism. Um, and I know that I see that it's a lot of times it's typically associated with, uh, with the homeless population when you do see it. And that's all, that's also something some important to keep in mind. Um, that way, when you get, if you find yourself in a lab, micro lab, and you get this ID, you know, check your patient's history. And then that way, you know, you couple all these things. And when you go to consult with your director and tell them, okay, you know, I have this organism, you know, homeless patient, that's the history. 
it seems that you know all this criteria I checked. So I think that this ID is good. So let's go ahead and confirm it via another method. Yeah, that's that's an important point. And it also gets at the point to just keep in mind what we do, which is provide medical care, the, the results that are critical to providing clinical care to real life human beings. And some of those real life human beings are perhaps at the worst, you know, they're, they're, ha they're having terrible days, you know, to, to be in the hospital, um, to have housing instability, like, like this patient did, to have really poorly controlled diabetes that allow, you know, this, this ulcer to, to form, right? You know, that, that's a lot of because of the social factors that they existed within. It's not because they're bad at controlling their diabetes. It's, it's from, you know, a, a lot else in, in the area where they exist. So, you know, empathy, compassion is such an incredibly important part of medicine. And, and that's also something that we in the lab have, you know, and, and we're not able to see the patients in the same way that folks on the clinical side are, but it's so important to remember that there is, there's is a human being on the other, the other end of this and, and they're, you know, they're, they're having a rough time. Um, so that's, you know, where, where some of these cultures can, you know, you start to hear the stories behind them and you say, yeah, this is, you know, what, what you do for all, all those out there in laboratory medicine listening, just keep in mind what you do matters. Um, and, and it is so very important. Um, you're, you're doing life-saving work. Um, and a lot of people in, in medicine, again, speaking from someone coming from a, from an internal medicine infectious disease background, you know, at that point, when I was on the wards, I didn't know how much work you were doing to help me do my job. Um, but thanks retrospectively for that. Just keep in mind on those days when it, when it feels a little thankless and when it feels like you're just doing the same thing over and over again, working up some other cultures and it feels like you're not seen. Um, that's that's life-saving work and it's incredibly important. Totally agree. The lab is the heart of the hospital and there's not a single patient that comes through the hospital that's not touched by our laboratory and by pathology. And even though we don't necessarily always get to see them face to face, we are literally saving their lives. And all of you working in the lab should be very proud of that. Well, definitely. Thank you both for that. I know that sometimes, yeah, especially there might be some days that it doesn't feel like, you know, like it's we are thanked for it. But it's definitely, you know, like you said, uh, it's definitely very important work. And I know like sometimes, you know, it feels like a lot. And especially if we're in a large facility working many, many cultures and with COVID, all the samples that we had to run and all the limitations that we faced. So it's definitely, you know, definitely great to, you know, know that our work is appreciated. And the same, the same two physicians and uh, everyone else in, you know, in the healthcare field, you know, all of you do great work and just, you know, we all do in different pieces, but at the end, the, the goal is, to provide the best care for our patients. That's right, Luis. Yeah. So is there anything else that you would like to add to this? Um, well, we were talking about how homelessness um, is sometimes associated with this organism. So in, in general, like all of the risk factors that are associated with this organism are the same risk factors for essentially acquiring my myiasis, which is basically having maggots, um, you know, infesting a wound or other part of your body. Um, so being homeless is one of those things and lots of other social determinants of health, like alcoholism, just low, you know, low socioeconomic status. Um, also, interestingly, proximity to livestock, which I guess maybe has, has you being around more fly larvae is another risk factor. So I just thought that was interesting that, you know, all those risk factors translate into risk factors for getting infection with this organism. Um, and then when we were talking about chitinase as well, there's another organism, which um, a little hard to pronounce, but I think Ignatz, Ignatz Chineria indica, 
um, is another organism that's also associated with myiasis and interestingly also expresses chitinase. Um, so um, sometimes those can be you know, misidentified for each other, but I think they can be differentiated using MALDI-TOF or sequencing. Um, but it's just interesting that both are associated with fly larvae and both express chitinase and can have a similar clinical presentation. So that's something important to keep in mind that there's some overlap there. Okay, and you, uh, Dr. Gaston, anything else? No, I, I just think that was that was a great description from Yimber, um, and this is this is a, a wonderful time. So thanks so much for having us on. It's been an honor. All right, definitely my pleasure. You know, this was great, and and I learned so much. You know, it's just it it is. It's always weird or like peculiar and how sometimes, you know, you never know about something and then you hear about it once and then you start hearing it again and again and again. And then earlier this year, I learned about this organism and here I am talking about it again. So definitely, you know, very informative, very educational. So really, thank you both for taking the time uh, for being here in Let's Talk Micro. Thank you for having us. This was so fun. Indeed. Thank you, Luis. All right. Thank you. And that, my dear audience, it's the end of this episode. I hope you enjoyed learning about, once again, about Wolfhartimonas carinoclastica. As always, I enjoy sharing this information with you. And remember, continue bringing that passion to what you do. It's so important. We do such great work. So, as always, stay motivated. Stay safe. And of course, continue talking micro. Until the next time. Bye.